This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, columnist John Crace on Boris Johnson's six-point plan for Ukraine, turning out to be six vague principles. Journalist Shireen Kale talks to Zoe Kravitz about growing up famous and getting her claws into Batman. Annalisa Barbieri on the small but mighty word, sorry, and why it's so hard to say. And finally, writer Amina Sena on the fearless female stand-ups of the 60s. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before we jump in, a quick warning there's a bit of bad language in this episode. First up, as Boris Johnson tries to reboot his premiership and impress on the world stage, his plan is already all but forgotten. And, John Crace observes, resembling something a toddler might come up with for a school assembly. This piece is read by Dan Starkey. Last weekend, we were told that Boris Johnson had a six-point plan with which he would lead the West to victory over Russia in Ukraine. However, on closer inspection, and on contact with reality, that plan didn't seem to amount to much more than you would expect from a toddler who'd been asked to come up with something for a primary school assembly to help other children understand the war. Or something that Gavin Williamson, make that Sir Gavin, might have dreamed up. 1. Get humanitarian aid to Ukraine and be nice to refugees. 2. Support Ukraine's efforts to do whatever Ukraine wants to do. 3. Increase sanctions on Moscow, though not on anyone we quite like, even if they owe their billions to Vlad the Invader. 4. Tell Russia to shut up and go away. 5. Tell Russia to shut up and go away a bit louder if Russia hasn't already shut up and gone away. 6. Try to ensure it never happens again. And that was it. Just six vague principles, on which anyone could more or less agree, and no metrics by which to measure their success. Certainly nothing by which the suspect could claim to be leading the world's response to the Russian invasion. Then again, no one outside the UK is claiming that anyway. And even then, it's only a small number of people inside Number 10, and the Boris-friendly media, who see Ukraine as a chance to reboot his premiership, to make him look impressive on the world stage and to make the country forget he is unfit for office. Certainly, the six-point plan appeared to be all but forgotten, as Johnson gave a joint press conference with Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, and Mark Rutte, the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, as was any sense of the UK leading a Western coalition against Russia. If Trudeau and Rutte were in any sense taking their cue from Johnson, 
it was news to them. Rather, this was, as far as they were concerned, a meeting of equals, of three leaders fumbling in the dark as they tried to impose rational solutions on an increasingly irrational Russia. Nor did the suspect choose to bring up the six-point plan that he had briefed so heavily over the past couple of days in his opening remarks. Probably for the best. In hindsight, even he must see that it's all a bit feeble. Instead, Johnson stuck to garbled generalities and platitudes. The international community was almost unanimous in its condemnation and must move together. Putin had underestimated the West and must surely fail. And in the meantime, the UK will be giving Ukraine an extra £175 million in humanitarian aid. Trudeau and Rutter said much the same, though in fewer words, mercifully. Though Trudeau did twice mention something about the importance of middle-class jobs and the ongoing crisis, before going on to say that Canada would be imposing sanctions on ten new individuals. This clearly startled Johnson. He sincerely hoped that the new people being targeted were not personal friends of his or philanthropists who had donated money to the Tory party. Most of the questions focused on the dependence of the West on Russian oil and gas. The three amigos more or less stuck to the same script. Reducing dependence was a good idea, but not every country could move at the same speed. Obviously, no one was going to start an energy crisis in their own country just to help Ukraine. I mean, come on everyone, get real. Johnson merely added that he was open to abandoning his commitment to net zero and that increasing North Sea oil production and starting fracking were not off the cards though he didn't seem to be aware that this might not solve the UK's problems as the oil and gas were likely to be sold abroad. Things got trickier for the suspect when he was asked about refugee visas and sanctions. On visas, he merely said that the UK wanted to be as generous as possible. Unfortunately, that turned out to be not very generous at all. After all, we had taken loads of Afghan refugees, and now the UK was technically full. It was just Ukraine's bad luck, but hopefully the Poles could help out. On sanctions, the UK was again going the extra mile. It was completely normal for the son of a KGB agent, who had done bugger all for the UK, to be granted a peerage after the personal intervention of the Prime Minister. In any case, it wasn't as if Yevgeny Lebedev ever went to the Lords, or spoke, or voted. He was a complete waste of space. He just liked to swan around while flunkies called him Lordsky. So, no harm done. He was hardly involved in UK politics at all. And as for the really bad oligarchs, as opposed to the pretend baddie oligarchs, the suspect had them in his sights. Any that hadn't been of use to the Conservatives would now find that they had to declare their beneficial interests in assets within six months, rather than 18 months, however awfully inconvenient for them this might be. Somehow Trudeau and Rutter managed to keep a straight face. It was all rather low-key, as if it had only just dawned on everyone there were no quick fixes on offer. Two weeks ago, Johnson had seen Ukraine's tragedy as an easy shot at personal redemption. Now he was beginning to realise there were strings attached. Tricky choices that would leave him further compromised. Decisions that would cost lives. And 
personal responsibility isn't the suspect's strongest suit. Nor that of his colleagues. In front of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, the Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, was putting all the blame for the failure to take more than a handful of refugees on the Home Office. Nothing to do with her, Gov. While in the Commons, Pretty Patel was insisting that the Home Office figures of just 50 refugees allowed in were nothing to do with the Home Office, and that visa staff were in Calais when they weren't, apart from those on holiday. Then Pretty Vacant at least has an excuse. She's not just vicious, she's stupid. Meanwhile, Ukraine burns and its citizens fight on alone. Just imagine their despair if they ever get wind of Johnson's six-point plan. That was Boris Johnson's six-point plan for Ukraine turns out to be six vague principles by John Crace, read by Dan Starkey. Next, Zoe Kravitz was born with a name to live up to, but as an actor, director and performer, she has made it her own. Here, she talks with Shireen Kale about fame, the perils of cancel culture, and embracing her inner cat. This piece is read by Leia Lewis. Zoe Kravitz is show business royalty, the daughter of actor Lisa Bonet and musician Lenny Kravitz. I expected her to be candid. Throughout her career, she's been outspoken on race and Hollywood, on body image and politics. In 2017, she starred in a British Vogue video in which she yelled, while sharing odd items she keeps in her handbag, fuck Trump. And when we meet one evening via Zoom, me in London, her in LA, she doesn't disappoint. Here she is, easygoing and thoughtful in conversation, an A-lister speaking her mind rather than the asinine niceties offered by more careful celebrities. I'm just a fucking nerd, she says at one point, though only half convincingly. A weirdo. She's bundled up in a hoodie and a beanie hat, makeup free apart from a delicate cat-eye flick of eyeliner, which feels appropriate. We're meeting to discuss The Batman, her new film in which she stars as Selina Kyle, otherwise known as Catwoman, opposite Robert Pattinson. The Batman is made by the American director Matt Reeves, who has described Kravitz as smart, funny, honest, unpretentious, and a great creative partner. To get into character, Kravitz watched videos of big cats and gradually adopted their physical attributes. It was fun to play with different ways of walking, of being agile, she says. You know, you can't read cats, which is why a lot of people feel uncomfortable around them. Kravitz conceptualised Kyle as someone who is tough, a street smart person. Her life has been really difficult and she's figured out a way to survive this far and take care of herself. And she really cares about other people in similar situations. To prepare for the role, she trained for four months. Was Kravitz, who had eating disorders as a teen, worried that the intense scrutiny on her body might prove triggering? No, actually, she says. I was focused on being strong versus being thin. It's a physical part. I wanted to make sure it felt believable, that she was physically capable of doing all the things she was doing. I was actually stronger and more healthy than I've been in a long time. And the iconic cat suit, I ask. How was that? <laughs> 
undignified. I was like a two-year-old, she laughs. If I needed the toilet, someone had to escort me in and out. Given her background, it seems Kravitz was destined for the limelight. When I asked whether she ever considered having a civilian job, something dry and non-flashy, not acting but accountancy, she immediately brightens. We used to joke, she says, that my version of rebellion would be, like, to become a lawyer or something. My dad would say that sometimes, because I'm good at arguing. But I don't know how I could ever have an office job. I struggle with that kind of structure or authority in general. Her mother was fired from the Cosby Show spin-off, A Different World, when she became pregnant with Zoe by Lenny, who was already an up-and-coming musician. Her paternal grandmother is Roxy Roker, the lead on pioneering 1970s sitcom The Jeffersons, the first show to depict an interracial couple on primetime TV. After her parents separated when she was a toddler, her mother remarried Aquaman actor Jason Momoa. They recently separated. Her father has variously dated Nicole Kidman, Vanessa Paradis and Adriana Lima. Like her father, who is an actor-musician, Kravitz, 33, is a polymath. She is the face of French fashion house Saint Laurent. She's in a band, Lola Wolf. She's working on a solo album with Taylor Swift collaborator Jack Antonoff. Though she is tight-lipped on what we should expect. It's the only part of our interview where it feels as if she's holding back. I suspect it's because the album may touch upon her divorce from the actor Carl Glussman. Kravitz filed for divorce in December 2020, mid-pandemic, after 18 months of marriage. It's a living, breathing thing, Kravitz says, vaguely, of the album. And I'm not quite sure where it will end yet. Her parents were people who broke down boundaries in a lot of ways, she says. They both dealt with being artists who didn't act or dress or look or sound the way a black person was supposed to act in terms of what white people specifically were comfortable with. But growing up between LA and Miami, and later in Manhattan, Kravitz sometimes felt uncomfortable with her heritage as a biracial woman. I felt really insecure about my hair, she says. Relaxing it, putting chemicals in it, plucking my eyebrows really thin. I was uncomfortable with my blackness. It took me a long time not only to accept it, but to love it and want to scream it from the rooftops. The turning point was realising what it meant, she goes on. For my grandmother to get a job on the Jeffersons and be a black woman on TV, and what it meant for her to be in a biracial relationship on television. And to hear stuff that my mother tells me about being a biracial girl in the 1970s, and being abused or being spit on, and what that felt like, you know? I ask whether her parents ever gave her the talk about racism before she entered Hollywood. They never warned me or anything, Kravitz says. I think they were more focused on trying to make sure I understood that despite the colour of my skin, I should be able to act or dress or do whatever it is I want to do. Kravitz is strategic about the role she takes. Her agent won't pass on those that are explicitly about race, lest she becomes pigeonholed. At one point, she says, all the scripts that were being sent were about the first black woman to make a muffin or something. Even though those stories are important to tell, I also want to open things up for myself as an artist. Kravitz believes the reason her character in the HBO blockbuster Big Little Lies was so multi-layered is, in part, because it was originally written for a white person. When on location for Big Little Lies in California, 
there are a few moments where I felt a little uncomfortable, she says, because it is such a white area. I ask her to elaborate. Just weird racist people in bars and things like that. Big Little Lies, in which she stars opposite Nicole Kidman, Reese Witherspoon, Laura Dern and Meryl Streep, and is very much their equal, came at a good time for Kravitz. For years, she kicked around in underpowered roles on the periphery of films. She was the thinly written sidekick to Shailene Woodley's lead in Divergent. She was a fringe superhero in X-Men First Class. She realised early on that she had to train herself not to fall in love with roles before she won them. It was too heartbreaking when things didn't go her way. Her mother would counsel her. Rejection is protection. Even though it's sometimes hard to see that in the moment, Kravitz says. Usually a few years later, you're like, okay, this is why this didn't happen. One rejection stands out. In 2012, Kravitz attempted to audition for the Batman film, The Dark Knight Rises, but was told she was too urban for the role. I don't know if it came directly from Chris Nolan, she says, anxious not to impugn the reputation of an award-winning director. I think it was probably a casting director of some kind, or a casting director's assistant. Being a woman of colour and being an actor and being told at that time that I wasn't able to read because of the colour of my skin and the word urban being thrown around like that, that was what was really hard about that moment. When the news later broke that Kravitz would be starring in The Batman, it was crazy, she says, half smiling, a flicker of triumph in those curiously feline eyes. My phone was blowing up more than any birthday I'd ever had. Kravitz's role in The Batman puts her steadfastly in A-list territory but it was Big Little Lies which became a critical and commercial hit for HBO that was her launchpad. Meteor roles soon followed, including the gender-swapped Hulu reboot of the 1995 romantic comedy High Fidelity, in which she starred and executive produced. That show got mixed reviews and was cancelled after one season. It sucked, she says of the cancellation. It hurt, and I do think it was a mistake. Kravitz is currently preparing to shoot her directorial debut, Pussy Island, a Me Too-inspired thriller about a young waitress who sets out to seduce a business magnate. I love to write. I love to edit, she says. But acting often really stresses me out because I feel like I'm there to serve the director and I don't want to let them down. Moving to directing feels more instinctively comfortable. The psychology of humans is really interesting to me, she says. And behind the camera, I still get to do that without the performance part. The Batman was originally slated for a June 2021 release date, but production shut down due to the pandemic. It was crazy, Kravitz says, of the day that filming stopped. You're away from home and you're focused and ready to go and you've been training for months. It was scary for a lot of people. Not knowing if the shutdown was going to be for a week or two weeks, it ended up being six months. At the time, Kravitz was filming in the UK, so she spent the first three months of lockdown in London, watching government press conferences and walking in nearby Hampstead Heath. I was like everyone else, she says. Tiger King and movies and food and all of that. It was a strange, lonely time. I don't have a lot of friends in London, so it was super isolating. 
Eventually, Kravitz returned to her upstate New York home, where she hunkered down and watched films, tried to stay in shape for when production resumed. All you want to do is sit on the couch and eat snacks and stuff. And I did that plenty, but I was also trying to keep my regimen a little bit because I'd worked so hard already. New York is her favourite place in the world, but lately it's felt oppressive. I love to walk around and be a part of that city, she says. But there have been times where I'm like, I'm not going to leave my house today because I don't feel emotionally capable of protecting myself energetically from that. By that, Kravitz means being recognised in the street. She does not enjoy being famous. It's a hard thing to talk about, she says, because no one wants to feel bad for people who have wonderful lives. Kravitz attempts to explain what this constant surveillance feels like. You go into a coffee shop and everyone is looking at you. So you're spending all of your energy trying to act like you don't see everybody looking at you. And it's the little things. I'll be putting my coffee lid on and it's like, don't spill it. Because if you do, it's going to be on the internet. It's like being the new kid in school every day. She is scathing about Instagram accounts like De Moi which share candid pictures of unsuspecting celebrities. People think that what they're doing is okay. Taking pictures of people when they're trying to eat or have a personal conversation, she says. And if you say, don't do that, they don't care. It's weird to not be considered a human being, which is what it feels like in those moments. In September 2021, Kravitz deleted all her Instagram posts, bar one promoting the Batman. She'd previously been a prolific poster, sharing candid photos of her famous friends to her 6.5 million followers. But over the years, she was repeatedly flamed on social media. In January 2021, she was criticised for not deleting a birthday post to her friend, fashion designer Alexander Wang, after abuse allegations were levelled at him. In September 2021, things came to a head when Kravitz attended the Met Gala in a sheer mesh dress. When she posted the outfit on Instagram, users criticised her for going practically naked. The incident was the catalyst for Kravitz wiping her entire account. It hurt my feelings, she says with a wry laugh. She's clearly stung by the criticism. I was really hurt. No matter who you are, how confident you are, people telling you that you're disgusting or that you should kill yourself, it doesn't feel good. I think by creating a literal area, a comment space, for someone to tell me what they think about me, I realised that was starting to affect my mental health and also the way I affect decisions. Even with my art, you know, thinking about what people are going to say. As an artist, that's like death. It's dangerous to start caring about what other people are going to think or what they do think. She is scathing about social media call-out culture. People are not expressing or doing what they want to do because they're afraid of getting into trouble, Kravitz says. We're not leaving room for growth. It's all based on shame and fear. It's completely out of control. The month we speak, Eddie Redmayne said his decision to play a trans woman in the 2015 film The Danish Girl was a mistake. The idea of certain actors not being able to play a certain part, says Kravitz, because you're not that thing in real life, I think that's really dangerous. Because I don't know what acting is if we're not allowed to play someone. It's about empathy. It's about stepping outside yourself. 
It's a brave position to take when the easier thing would be to shy away from discussing controversial issues. But I suspect that at this point in this career, after working for so long to get to the centre of the frame, Kravitz would rather just tell it like it is. There have definitely been moments in my life where I felt like I needed to soften my edges in some way, she says firmly. I think that's something most people go through, regardless of what industry you're in. Not wanting to take up too much space, or the idea that women need to be pleasant or something. And now, I've had a really great few years just feeling okay with taking up space and not getting it right every time. And that's been really, really liberating. That was I'm Okay With Not Getting It Right Every Time. Zoe Kravitz on Growing Up Famous and Getting Her Claws Into Batman by Shireen Kale. Read by Leia Lewis. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey Mel, Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty. Daddy! Hey Mikey, if you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl. But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm going to get to that budget just as soon as I... Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, as a nation, we are renowned for over-apologising, but very few of us truly understand the required ingredients for a meaningful apology. Here, Annalisa Barbieri explores the grown-up word that most adults struggle to use. Read by Dan Starkey. It had been 20 years since I'd seen my aunt. In that time... I'd lived a full life, written a book and had a baby. But as she stared at my bottom, I knew what she was thinking. Then she said it. Are you competing with Mary? There was some skill here. In a few words, she deftly managed to insult both my cousin and me. The subtext was, you've got as fat as her. Fuelled by postpartum hormones, I decided to tell my aunt, 
for the first time how insulting I found this. I'm sorry, she said, if you choose to take offence at what I said. Ah, the apology rendered immediately void by the word if. Expecting any apology at all was ambitious, because I come from a family who largely can't and don't apologise. Strange, given we are all Catholics. The sorries are either histrionic and overplayed, or never manifest. The idea being, I guess, that if you don't say sorry, did it even happen? I've also always been confused at the very English never apologise, never explain maxim, supposedly a sign of status. Because of all this, I've had a lifelong fascination with apologies, and a lot of them, including my own, are sometimes lacking. Why is this? Why is it so hard to say sorry? There are several types of apology. The automatic, sorry I bumped into you, the sorry after you in a queue, and the very British, sorry, for someone else's misdemeanour, like when they stand on your toe. We say a lot of these silly sorries. There's also sorry said in sympathy, or sorry to sympathise. I'm sorry to hear that, or I'm sorry, that sounds hard. But the sorry that matters is the one aimed at healing hurt, when we recognise we've done wrong and want to make amends. This is not an easy sorry. It requires more than mere vocabulary, which is why teaching children to say sorry by saying, say sorry, is not a robust parenting tool. The ingredients for a good apology are authenticity, recognition, empathy, ability to take responsibility, and finally, a good dose of vulnerability and humble pie. It's a grown-up's word, yet few grown-ups use it well. If it lacks these things, it doesn't land, said child and adolescent psychotherapist Alison Roy. This is why we so often feel short-changed after an apology, especially an official one. We were wronged with the original fault, and wronged again in the supposed apology. In fact, we can end up feeling manipulated. Corporate speak is now so clever, we are apologised to with such regularity, yet never feel anyone has really said sorry. Train companies, I'm looking at you. An apology has to be meaningful if anyone, but especially children, is going to make sense of it, said Roy. It should be a way to reconnect with the person you've wronged. But coping with feelings of shame, of having got something wrong, of being a flawed human being, is quite a sophisticated thing. These are not easy emotions and experiences, so we can't just expect our children to understand by giving them a word. We have to model it for them. In other words, we need to practice what we preach. It's important to start with children, because it is usually in childhood that most of us learn to say sorry, or not. It tends to be either modelled well, or not at all. We realise how it leaves us feeling, wretched, and resolve to do better. If we learn to say sorry without thought, all we learn is that sorry is a quick way to get off the hook. There's no reflection. This often leads to an apology with no change in behaviour, which is pointless and infuriating. And forcing anyone, especially a child, to say sorry to an audience without first finding out what happened can lead to resentment and humiliation, 
never good in a growing brain. I once taught a writing workshop in a secondary school. One day I did something wrong and said, gosh, I'm so sorry. The class fell silent. Teachers never say sorry to us, miss, they told me. This is a common lament among young people. Adults expect us to say sorry, but they never do. You have only to listen to debates in Parliament to tell the good apologies from the bad and hear how very playground some of them sound. In the past 12 months, there have been 1,812 I'm sorry's from both houses and counting. The House of Commons tips the Lords at 1,090 to 722 and 1,273 I apologises. Most of these are mere punctuation, and in the case of Boris Johnson, even when he does apologise, and he apologises more than people think, and uses good phrases such as I take full responsibility and I am truly sorry, it just doesn't land. I often wonder how Johnson was taught to apologise as a child. It's rather shocking how many of these apologies try to shift the real responsibility. I'm sorry, followed by a conjunction, if, but, or that. Examples include, I'm sorry that you feel that way, and I'm sorry if you took offence. Familiar, aren't they? That's because they are everywhere. Hansard is full of things like, I'm very sorry to the noble baroness that she feels that way. Is that really being sorry? It's the worst kind of apology, said mediator and conflict resolution expert Gabrielle Rifkind. Saying, I'm sorry you feel that way, is not a genuine apology. It's not taking responsibility for your actions. It's putting the blame back to the wronged person. Rifkind once gave me a wonderful tip about building bridges. It involved starting with words to the effect of, You really matter to me, and I want to work out what has gone wrong, so I'm going to do nothing but listen to you for the next 15 minutes. When was the last time someone said that to you? Exactly. But it's seductive, isn't it? I'm not sure I would even need an apology with that sort of starter. But it is hard to apologise if we fear reprisals. Fear and shame are the enemies of a confident apology. To bloom, apologies need safety and the prospect of being understood. Safety is often lacking, because we fear that saying sorry could cost us our relationship, our job, or a heap of money. One of the things we're taught as new drivers is, don't admit fault if there's an accident, even if it is your fault. Psychoanalyst Stephen Blumenthal thinks authentic apologies are more likely in horizontal, more democratic relationships. If the person saying sorry and the person wronged are on the same level, then in a more vertical relationship, such as boss and employee. This is why siblings and co-workers are more likely to admit to wrongdoing to each other than to parents or bosses. Unless, of course, they fear being ratted out. A genuine sorry, he says, emanates from a place of wanting to validate and care for the other person, not shame them. We live in a culture of inquisition rather than inquiry. More concerned with identifying a person with an action of wrongdoing than curiosity about what's gone wrong or why. Some people see it as a sign of power to not say sorry, but the inverse is true. At some point I realised that a good apology, confidently delivered, was like having a superpower. Even something short like, I got it wrong, I'm sorry, can be potent and calming. Or, 
If you want to go longer, I can see I've upset you and I'm very sorry. I made a mistake. It won't happen again. What can I do to make it a bit better for you? What do you need? Notice the use of the I word and you only in terms of needs. It isn't an apology if you shift the blame. One of my favourite apologies of all time was given by former MP Louise Mensch in 2011. She not only owned her behaviour and apologised, but killed any further discussion stone dead. She'd had an email from an investigative journalist accusing her of taking drugs, being drunk and dancing with a famous violinist, all in front of journalists. It was done to shame her. Instead of running away from it, she published the email, adding that the incident sounded highly probable and that she was pretty sure it was not the only incident of the kind. She apologised to any and all journalists who were forced to watch me dance that night. A little bit of humour did her no harm, but the power was in her ownership of the incident, leaving no ammunition with which to take further aim at her. Sorries are not dissimilar to thank yous. Both are small, but mighty. So much grace and joy can be handed over if you use them with meaning, and they can both deliver much misery and hurt if misused, or not used at all. Sometimes, however, people make an apology but it comes too late, or is too small, and it can feel hard to accept or move on. Questions to ask yourself here would be, instead of making the sorry the end of something, could it be the beginning of a bigger discussion, along the lines of, what do I need to do to make it better? Or, can anything make it better? If the answer to the latter is no, perhaps the sorry is being asked to do too much heavy lifting right then. Time may be needed for healing. But can it start without sorry? I don't think so. I'm writing a series of children's books. One is about saying sorry. The protagonist fears that every time they do so, a piece of them goes with the apology and they will lose themselves. The opposite is true. With every genuine sorry, we grow, the other person grows, and so does the connection between us. That was Why Sorry Really Is the Hardest Word by Annalisa Barbieri, read by Dan Starkey. Finally, they were pigeonholed, derided and even shot at. With the marvellous Mrs Maisel back on TV screens, Amina Sena finds out what life was really like for women who dared to be funny in the post-war years. Read by Leia Lewis. Back in the days when they were still called comediennes, an older comedienne turns to a younger one and says, What is your persona? The younger woman is confused. Bob Hope and Lenny Bruce don't have personas, she says. They're just allowed to be funny as themselves, so why isn't she? They have dicks, snaps back Sophie Lennon, one of the most memorable characters in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. In the hit Amazon show, set in 50s and 60s New York, Midge Maisel discovers her talent as a stand-up. She's an accidental comic, getting up on stage at a Greenwich Village club one night drunk and angry and confessional, after her husband leaves her for his secretary. At the time, there is really only one mainstream female stand-up, Lennon, whose persona is that of a queen's housewife, complete with feather duster, fat suit and grating catchphrase. Maisel, 
with her shocking, electrifying set, it ends with her getting arrested, represents a new style of comedy, particularly for women. Lennon and Maisel have been likened to real-life comics Phyllis Diller and Joan Rivers. The show's creator, Amy Sherman Palladino, has said Maisel is more of an amalgam of lots of people, including her father, who was a stand-up. When Jane Lynch, who plays Lennon, read the script, she thought of Diller, whose act was a caricature of a 50s housewife. There had been others, such as Belle Bath, Rusty Warren and Moms Mabley. In 1939, Mabley, who had come from the black vaudeville circuit, became the first female comic to perform at the Harlem Apollo. The third season of Maisel features Mabley, played by Wanda Sykes, performing there. Mabley had a grandmotherly housewife persona, but was more edgy than Diller, her act confronting gender and racial prejudice. It was Diller, though, who became the first female comic superstar. In order to break through, says Lynch, you had to have material that spoke to men, because the club owners, the TV producers, and the late-night hosts were men. You would cater your material to what they would think is funny. And something that men love is when it refers to them. You go, I can't get a boyfriend because I'm ugly. And right there, you're not threatening. You're almost one of the guys, because the guys don't want to go to bed with you. Lynch's character explains this problem to Maisel, referring to her beauty. Men don't want to laugh at you, she says. They want to fuck you. You can't go up there and be a woman. You've got to be a thing. Modern viewers can immediately tune into Maisel's material about sex and the challenges of motherhood, as well as her sweary rants, all delivered in up-to-date dialogue. It's not meant as a historical record, points out Yael Cohen, author of We Killed, The Rise of Women in American Comedy. I think there is an aspect of the comedy and her point of view that is very modern, she says, and it's being imposed on someone in that time period. Whereas at the time, the comics who became successful, such as Diller and Rivers, were not necessarily defying female stereotypes. Joan Rivers was joking about getting a husband. In reality, it would be some years after Maisel's debut that more subversive intellectual comics such as Lily Tomlin would take off. There had been other women whose acts didn't rely on a comic lack of self-esteem, such as Elaine May, but she was an improv, not stand-up. Dilla told Cohen she wore a sack dress partly because looking funny was part of the act, but also because I had such a great figure. Cohen says there's long been a tension between women's looks and their sense of humour, this idea that a funny woman couldn't be beautiful. Rivers, with her black cocktail dress and pearls, challenged this to some extent. In her book, Cohen quotes a 1963 review of Rivers' early act. Female comics are usually horrors who de-sex themselves for a laugh, but Miss R remains visibly and unalterably a girl. But, points out Cohen, Rivers was not a conventional beauty in the way Maisel is. She cared about how she looked and she used that in her comedy but it doesn't mean the tension between being beautiful and funny wasn't there. It is also, adds Cohen, not irrelevant that Mrs. Maisel is Jewish. Many of the most famous women in comedy from the 1960s on were Jewish. It's important to note that these women weren't considered emblems of wasp femininity. They were considered part of an ethnic minority and not conventionally beautiful. Jewish women were often considered an exception to the rule that women aren't funny, 
Christopher Hitchens, for example, singled them out in his infamous essay, Why Women Aren't Funny. And it wasn't always a compliment. In the 60s, Treva Silverman, who would go on to write for the Mary Tyler Moore show, but was rejected for Johnny Carson because she was a woman, was writing sketches for Upstairs at the Downstairs, the New York nightclub where many comics and musicians started their careers. With topical reviews, she says, nobody cared if it was a man or a woman. It was more of a cabaret atmosphere. There was not the kind of sexism there was with stand-up. My doing sketches was not that unusual for a woman. Silverman and Rivers became friends. Joan was so ambitious from the very beginning, says Silverman. She was in touch with absolutely every agent, and they were not used to booking a female comedian. People would say, well, and her agent would say, try her for one night, because they knew that that would mean booking her for a week. What were Rivers' early audiences like? They would think, what is she doing up there? She should be home stirring the omelette or whatever. But she was so likeable. Men liked her immediately because she was very pretty, even though she kept complaining she wasn't. Her act, says Silverman, was absolutely from a female perspective. She talked about what it was like to be a woman, an unmarried woman, when everybody else was doing the right thing. She was talking about feeling inferior, somewhat unattractive, being the odd person in not only a male-dominated world, but also not up to par with the rest of the women. But everything she complained that she didn't have, of course she had. In putting herself down, says Silverman, she kind of knew that she would be more likeable. Robin Tyler was part of a double act in the 60s with her partner, Patty Harrison. Humour is the most aggressive medium there is, she says. The only way women were allowed to be aggressive is when they turned it on themselves. So you have Phyllis Diller and Joan Rivers with, I'm not pretty enough. Tyler says she understands it because that's what they had to do to make a living. Diller told Cohen, women's libbers hated what I was doing. They didn't like my self-deprecation. Harrison and Tyler had started joking about things like bra sizes, but then second wave feminism took off. They read Betty Friedan's 1963 book, The Feminine Mystique, and it felt like a wake-up call. We said, why are we making jokes on ourselves? Women, continues Tyler, were questioning what we thought was funny. Patty and I turned it around and did, take my husband, and I don't have penis envy, I have 12 at home in a drawer. This was towards the end of the 60s, and reviews of their work called them threatening to men. All we did was take the same material male comics were doing about women and turn it on men. Tyler enjoys The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which has just started its fourth series, not least because it echoes some of her own career, in particular when Maisel and her family go on holiday to the Catskill Mountains, where popular resorts attracted affluent Jewish families. I used to perform as a singer in the Borscht Belt. The comics there, I loved them, all the Jewish comics, but it was still sexist. Like Maisel, Harrison and Tyler performed for US troops, but, unsurprisingly, their feminist act did not go down as well as Maisel's funny, but extremely feminine material. On a comedy tour in New Zealand, Tyler says the man who booked them for one gig was so angry that they were encouraging the women in the audience to organise liberation movements, he shot at them. We aggravated a lot of people because not only were we funny on stage, we were activists off stage, 
and they had never seen women use comedy as a weapon. They mostly played colleges rather than clubs. Why would we want to play clubs where we played to sexist audiences? We were never going to end up in Vegas. In the 70s, they made an attempt to go more mainstream when they were approached to make TV, but they didn't fit. Tyler remembers getting a call from Fred Silverman, the influential TV executive. We said, we're lesbians. He said, that's okay, just don't tell anybody. They were trying to make us do stupid sketches of stupid women and we hated it. They made four pilots with us and it didn't work out. Not only were we women aggressive, we were lesbians aggressive, so that was really too much. TV, she says, was like an extension of the comedy circuit. It wasn't just sexist. They had to neutralise us. That was I Don't Have Penis Envy. I have 12 in a drawer at home. The Fearless Female Stand-Ups of the 60s by Amina Sena. Read by Leah Lewis. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. The articles were read by Dan Starkey and Leah Lewis and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade greaves This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Vicoutier. The executive producers are Danielle Stevens and Nicole Jackson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.